to those around me. Are, you would show us the power of your might and that God we would see once again all that you're able to do but father may we see what we're called to do based upon what you have done and so God once again just bless us speak to us minister us on this day we pray in Jesus name amen why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him happy Sunday happy Sunday Good morning, Jim. How are you? Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 3. We'll be picking up at verse 15, where we left off last week. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you. If there's not, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. If anybody needs a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, There's no ushers. (laughs) Ushers left. Maybe they know something. Today, we've got a lot in this section of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the hope, basically, briefly, the hope that is within us. We'll review our conscience. We're going to look at the tree of Christ, and we're going to look at the tree of Judas and the difference between the two. And then we're going to look at bad angels and Nephilim. So we've pretty much got a whole lot here today to, to deal with. So go ahead, let's start by the reading of God's Word, if you'll stand. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God, or sanctify Jesus as Lord, in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, or a biblically correct conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the just or the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities, powers having been made subject to him. And so, God, as you have made all subject to you, as we are your subjects, I pray, Father, once again, that we would be at this place for the purpose of hearing from our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
So again, what we are seeing is Peter writing to the surrounding churches. Peter is in Rome right now, and he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey because he's observed the persecution of the church that is occurring in Rome. Nero, Nero, historians tell us both biblically and secularly that he was pretty much insane. He was putting to death Christians and both Christians and Jews, and Peter was of the mindset what happens to Rome sooner or later is going to go throughout the kingdom. And so what he is doing is he is preparing people for suffering, the suffering and the persecution that is going to come. I don't know what proportion, might even be myself this week, there'll be trials that we go through. There's going to be seasons of suffering that we all endure. And so just as God is preparing those people back then for what they were going to have to endure, God's even prepares us, maybe even preparing some in this very room for what will be happening in the week or weeks to come. Now, last time we met, we looked at three places of protection that the Lord gives to those who suffer. And the key here is suffering for righteousness sake. We all do things that are unwise and we suffer the consequences of them. But again, the theme here is suffering for the sake of what God has called us to do. And so these three places of protection that we looked at last week, places that God watches over us and keeps us in the midst of our suffering, well, the first place of protection out in the world is being a follower of what is good. We saw that, of that which is proper, biblical, moral excellence. As we are attempting to mimic Jesus Christ to the world, as we read the scriptures and we do our best to follow the word of God for the purpose of giving that witness. In verse 13 it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers, if you live your life in a manner that is of biblical moral excellence, if you become followers of what is good? God will watch over you. God will protect you in the midst of those seasons of suffering. A second place of protection that we have out in the world is to keep things in their proper perspective. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. If you fear God, if you have a fear of God, you will not be afraid of the world. A fear of God is a respect for God that seeks to do what God has called you to do, to be obedient to God's call in your life. To be afraid of man, again, is to hover in the corner. It's to pull back. It's to hide. It's to keep yourself for the purpose of protecting yourself from that which, well, just seemingly is going to do you harm. But as we know, God is greater than all. The Lord will watch over and protect us. You can stand up and say, well, what about those who have given their lives for their faith? Well, God protects our life both here on earth and in heaven. Those who have perished from the earth are in the presence of God, in the presence of glory. The third place of protection we have out in the world is to be a witness. Again, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God, or we saw in the original language, but sanctify Christ as Lord. I like that reading better because what it does is it reminds us that we are to follow through in the orders that our Lord has given us. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's always as far as in season and out of season when you expect to have the opportunity and when you do not expect to have an opportunity. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, to do so in a humble manner. 
Now, there is one thing that can cause these places of protection to be of no effect. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. The hindrance, a bad conscience from bad conduct. That is, to be a Christian, to say you're a Christian, to even proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord, but to live a life that is contrary to the Scriptures. Now, as born-again believers, we don't live our life according to the Scriptures for the purpose of salvation, to be able to obtain salvation. Nobody can obtain salvation based upon their own works. It's by the grace of God that that free gift is offered to us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. But because of the grace of God, because God has been gracious to us, because God has given us that which we do not deserve, then, well, if Jesus Christ is truly the Lord or the ruler of my life, then I will seek to conduct my life in obedience to what he has called me to do and to be whom he has called me to be. If I do that, to the best of my ability, we're all going to stumble, we're all going to fail, but I'll have a clear conscience. I'll have a conscience that is right before the Lord, and through that I'll have a confidence, not in myself, but in Jesus Christ. But if I'm not doing that, my conscience, well, the result of a conscience gone bad, well, first is a conscience that has been, well, gone bad. It is defiled. We're told in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. It speaks of a dirty window. Again, your conscience is your ear for the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be hearing. There's going to be a hindrance there if you're living a life that is in sin. If you're living a life that is contrary to God, contrary to proper biblical teachings, there's going to be this hindrance to the ear of the Spirit. Secondly, a result of a conscience gone bad, it can be seared. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, this is an association with sin that causes, if you will, the deadening of the nerves. If you've ever burnt yourself, what God does is, how he has created you, he allows pain to be there, and so you know you'll stop doing that, but also a deadening of the nerves at a certain point so that the pain will not always be there. And those who have caused their conscience to gone bad, they have this seared conscience where that which used to be sin, or maybe when they did sin and the Holy Spirit convicted them, they no longer hear that. They've been cut off. They've been seared from the the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, a conscience, a conscience gone bad can be poisoned as well. How is a conscience poisoned? A conscience is poisoned through human wisdom. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. Verse 17, back in 1 Peter 3, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And we've all had seasons of suffering because of sin, because we have chosen to live a life contrary to our Lord because we have refused God's direction and we have followed our own will. But here where Peter is saying, it is better, if it is the will of God, for suffering, for doing good, than for doing evil. So the thing about it is, either way, in this life, we live in this fallen, uh, fallen world, there's going to be suffering. Is it going to be in the Lord? Or is it going to be apart from the Lord? There's 
doctrines out there that they have promised people the world. Come to Christ, and you'll just have a blessed life. Come to Christ, and, and, and your sicknesses will be healed. And That's not reality. I came to Christ, and I still get sick. I came to Christ, and I still suffer persecution from time to time. And we all do, as we seek to live godly lives. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. That hardship is going to be a reality within our lives. Now, the problem with people that kind of sell you this false bill of goods, people come into Christianity and the suffering is either still there or if it intensifies, then they walk away or they think they're not saved. Well, the problem is they have not gotten proper teaching to be able to understand reality within the Christian life. And reality within the Christian life, and if we brought a parade up here, you'd hear testimony after testimony from the most mature to the least mature of the hardship that we have all faced. What is that called? Well, we have our testimony before Christ, and we have our testimony after Christ. Testimony before Christ was how we conducted ourselves in the world. A testimony after Christ is how Christ has conducted himself in our life. And this is a reality, but it should also be a joy. Also be a joy as I am going through those seasons of suffering that God is with me and he will never leave me nor forsake me. It's in those times, during those times, that you realize the magnitude of the love that Christ has for you. The love for Christ can be abstract to a degree, don't get me wrong on this, in salvation or maybe it's because we can just kind of get lax to that. And so God has seasons of suffering so that we would cling to our Lord and Savior and be reminded of the goodness that he has. How do we cling to our Lord and Savior? Well, just through the same ways that I repeated so many times from this pulpit. Being in fellowship, not staying home and watching the Super Bowl tonight. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Being in fellowship, being in the Word, and being in prayer. There's no formula doing this three times a day or four times a week or whatever, but just needs to be your manner of habit to be in fellowship, to be amongst godly people, to be in the word, because the word is how God speaks to us, to be in prayer. It's how we have conversation with God as we speak to him. This is what a Christian, a born-again believer, has been called to do. How you doing in that? I'm going to talk a little bit about that in our couples retreat. I'm sorry, our couple's, uh, our, our couple's dinner. I, I want to get into some specifics and how God has called us to be and how he has determined to work and to act in our marriage. And if our marriages are not all that they can be, and there's not one person in this room whose marriage is all that it can be, but where it is that we fall short and what we knew, need to do to get back right on track. So... Now back in 1 Peter, we come to the third part of Peter's final instruction where he uses as Jesus' example and personal experience on how we can have a good conscience towards God. Now, when it comes to a conscience, Martin Luther said, Grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. The two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience but Christ has vanquished these two monsters and trotted them underfoot, both in this world and that which is to come. And so my ear for the Holy Spirit, it pars myself, you, whoever, in an unsaved state. What did the Spirit do? He convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Holy Spirit was using my conscience in order to pound that into my mind. 
And he was convicting me of these things. And as I was in rebellion to Christ, I had no peace in that. I would try to foster my peace through parties or however it is that men and women try to foster peace apart from Christ. But because of sin, my conscience was never quiet. And so I I had to do the things that I talked about earlier, sear my conscience and poison it and so on and so forth, because I couldn't live with myself if I didn't, because that constant conviction is always there, and it is there for the world. And as I've said so many times, it's why the world self-medicates, it's why they get involved in clubs, and, and why they do all of these things, it's why the nations rage, it's because of this conviction that comes through the Holy Spirit, through our conscience. And so, as that is being the case, man cannot have total and complete peace apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because now, although... I did what I did before I was saved. All of those sins, that was true. There's a list. Matter of fact, that list didn't stop at the point of my salvation. Haven't lived the perfect life since I was saved, but I can still have perfect peace. That's what we're going to see here in a little bit. Why? Because all of my sins have been washed away. God has chosen to look upon me just as if I have never sinned. And again, I've used the example before, used to be my children, now it's my grandchildren. They're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. They take after my kids. Because they were sinners, and so was their mother. As long as you keep laughing at that, I'll keep saying it. And their father. But I look at them just as if they've never sinned, because I love them. I love them. They're mine. And that's the same thing. God loves you, and you're his if you're a born-again believer. And now I know my grandkids are going to suffer, and they're going to do things that put themselves in position to, to, for pain to be caused because of the nature and so on and so forth. But as much as I can, I'll be there for them I'll constantly. My wife and I, we pray for them every single day. My wife posts something on, I don't know if it's Facebook or email or both or whatever, I just don't remember, but we have a prayer for their grandchildren every single week that you can use for your children as well if it's applicable. And we constantly are lifting them up. We're constantly praying for them. But as far as their sins, look at them as a sinner. I'm there for them, just as my Father in heaven is there for me. And because of that, my conscience, there's a great confidence within that in my Christian life. That God is for me. You tell me. Who can be against me? Again, there's a question asked. The answer is always scripturally to the negative. The answer would be, the implied answer is nobody Because who is greater than God? And included in that nobody is yourself. Don't condemn yourself. Because ultimately, who is the greater judge? God is always the greater judge. And we can even condemn ourselves. Well, if God doesn't condemn us, why are we putting ourselves in the position of being a greater judge and condemning us? Now, God is going to convict us as we're being disobedient. He's going to correct us. He's going to punish us. And all of these things are realities within our lives. But it's, once again, it's based upon a spirit of love. And so it's because of grace, that free gift of salvation, 
that there are no lingering effects of sin left undone. If there are no lingering effects of sin left undone, then my conscience is clear, or it is good, and it's then that I'm able to have peace. But a problem, especially in a born-again people's life. Now keep in mind who Peter is writing to. He's writing to a church that is about to come under attack. And he's wanting them to know that this isn't because you messed up. This isn't because you're bad people or you're contrary to God or you've lost your salvation. All of these things that we can think in our minds when something happens. But this is what is common. It's because we're being witnesses, because we're being proactive in our Christian faith that the devil is attacking. The enemy will not attack somebody who is not moving forward. And so because we're attacking the enemy, the enemy is fighting back. I remember we had moved to Brea. This was like in 1972. It was summertime. It was really hot. And I remember we were all working in the backyard. My father, and he was given his little jobs to do. And all of a sudden, my brother, well, first of all, my brother was poking our dog. It was like 100 degrees. Our dog is sitting in the shade, and he was poking him with a, a broomstick. I don't know why. I don't remember. But my dad told him, don't do that. And so we all left back to what we were doing, and all of a sudden, we heard him scream. Well, he got bit by the dog. Because he kept poking him with a broomstick. Well, every time we go out and share the gospel, we're poking the devil with a broomstick, if you will. And he's not going to like it, and he's going to respond to it. That's just not a, 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 a funny story. Or any, that's a biblical reality. Remember the, the temptations that Christ entered into right after he was baptized? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then came into the wilderness for that time of, uh, of trials and, and, and testings. There was all kinds of demonic activity that is listed both in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Why was all this raging? Because God was doing a great work. When God does a great work in size, but also in quality, the devil does a great work in size, but not so much in quality. And so it's always important to what you're doing. So think it not a strange thing when you fall into temptation. Think it not a strange thing when trials enter into your lives as you make the decision to live a godly life, a life that is more dedicated to the Lord. Best illustration, best illustration by two trees and two places where you can have your conscience quieted. There are two places that if your conscience rages in your life that you can have it brought to peace. The first tree is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where Peter figuratively went when he denied and had his conscience, we're going in and out here, had his conscience cleared, realizing the peace that we have at the cross. How, How did he come to the cross? Well, it was as Christ approached him. What did he do when he was in the boat? If you're a Thursday nighter, we talked about this last Thursday night. He didn't wait. He jumped in and he came to Christ. As soon as one of the fellow members there said, it's the Lord, boom, he was there and he was in the presence of the Lord. And it was the only reason that he stood in the presence of the Lord because he realized the grace of God, realizing the peace that we have at the cross. Now look at verse 18 in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive to the Spirit. So a defiled, seared, and evil conscience can find relief at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It's to have an ear for the Holy Spirit and be open to his call of repenting of your sins and coming into a relationship with Christ. So there's that tree, and I pray that tree that the majority of us have come to and received of all that God has, has, and that's able to quiet our conscience. But there is another tree. Another tree, that place where you can find relief from your conscience as well, this is the one, though, that not Jesus used. This is the one that Judas used. Not willing to come to Christ, he sought after his own solution. We're told in Matthew 27, 5, Then he, Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, verse 18, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. Not a very pretty picture, but trying to quiet your conscience apart from Christ is not very pretty whatsoever. Unfortunately, those who take that solution, they enter into something even more evil than a conscience that is convicting them. At the end, their conscience is quiet, but now they're feeling the reality of separation from God for all of eternity. This is to have an ear, not for the spirit, but for the devil, and be open to his leading. Both of them will work, will quiet the conscience. Which one is it going to be? Is it going to be the tree of Christ? Is it going to be the tree of Judas? The decision? The decision is ours. One is an ear for the Holy Spirit. The other is an ear for he who deceives. How does the tree of Christ work for us in the area of our conscience as we use it to hear from the Holy Spirit? Three things in verse 18. First of all, it says, Christ also suffered, and the idea in that is that he died once for sins. The one-time death of Christ was good for all of the sins, all of your sins, all of the sins of mankind. When Jesus was hung upon that tree, when he was hung upon the cross, he died for all of the previous sins. He died for the sins that were going on even at that moment. And he died for all of the future sins as well. He died once. We as believers receive him once. And we are once and for all forgiven of all that we have done. In Jude 3, it says, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We need to see the magnitude of this work that God has done. Secondly, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. We who were undeserving of death, I'm sorry, he who was undeserving of death, Jesus, died for those who were deserving to die. And so... We were apart from Christ. We were destined for destruction, but he who was not died for us so that we may live. That we, when it says that we might, that he might bring us to God, the idea implies a decision to come to Christ, the belief to come to Christ in belief and receive him. Thirdly, put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by who also? We have a God who is alive today and ready to help in our time of trouble. God is there, and God is there for you, and God desires to hear from you. God never gets tired of listening to you. He always wants to hear from you. When I get a call from my grandchildren, it's not, oh, it's them again. There's always an excitement about it. And when God hears from you, there's an excitement. You're able to excite the heart of God. And that's just an amazing thing when you think it through. In 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who opened the door, opened the avenue for our relationship with the Father. 
And so Peter, Peter had an ear for the Holy Spirit who led him to the tree of life. Now again, there's that other one who vies for our ear for things spiritual, the devil, Judas's tree, and again, death that enters in, may conscious the quiet, but it will bring us to the place of eternal torment. Peter shows us how Christ achieved victory for us in this area as well, though. Although the doctrine here is not wrong, the translation is one that can kind of cloudy the, cloud the, uh, the meeting here. If you look it up in the original language, it says, for Christ also, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being, being, um, having been made alive in the Spirit. Having been made alive in the Spirit. Not made alive by the Spirit, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, you look at it from that translation, this brings no new doctrine or anything along those lines, but it does accentuate the point that uh, Peter is making. Now, the translators, they took the, um, not the adjective, preposition. The preposition that is put there, by the, by the can also be translated in the or because of the. And it just makes more sense in the spirit. Jesus has been made alive in the spirit because we know when he died, he did not cease to exist. He still existed for those three days before he was resurrected. And now what we're going to see here is, is the, the apostle Peter writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that gives us some insight to the things that were going on during that time of three days. So Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins. Then in his spiritual body, he went to a place that the Bible refers to as Hades. Turn over to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's where we have a picture of this doctrine. Hades is not hell. For some it may feel like it, but Hades is not hell. Hades is the holding place for those who have died before Christ. Now, you have a good side of Hades and you have a bad side of Hades. Jesus Christ, before he died, the gates of heaven were not open to mankind. Why? Because man cannot enter before a holy God until sin was dealt with. And so we have this good side of Hades. Again, Hades just simply means this dwelling place of the dead. We have this good side of Hades, this holding tank, if you will. It's called Abraham's bosom. It's this place where people went before Christ paid the price for their sins, again, because they could not enter into the throne of God at that time. And then there was the bad side of Hades. The bad side of Hades still exists even today. It's that place where people go before that final judgment that we see in Revelation chapter 20. But reading in Luke chapter 16, let me get over there, verses 19, verse 19 through 31, it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar, this is in contrast, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried to the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, this is the rich man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in the lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is confirmed. 
uh, comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those pass uh, from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, or they have the word of God, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We see that fulfillment to the spiritually arrogant of the Lord's time. So, the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, a couple of things happen. One related to what I just read. There was the, the Lord as he came and he ministered to those who were on the good side of Hades, if you will. We're told of that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And the idea is, is that Christ went down to the good side of Hades and he let the captives free. Now they're able to enter into the throne room of God. Why? Because upon the cross, Christ paid the price for sin. To lead captivity captive, the idea is those who were yours at one time and then who have been taken captive, you then are able to take them back captive. And so Christ has taken those who died in faith back unto themselves. But then... There's the other reason. Verses 19, back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, this time happened so that God's grace and God's victory upon the cross, that it would be, it would be validated and it will be justified. So we know that he went, we're told in Ephesians, that he went and he led captivity captive. He let those who've died in faith come into glory. But now there's another group that he is going to speak to. Again, verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, he didn't, we're not told here that he went to the bad side of Hades. This is a completely different thing. And this is related back to Noah. I mean, it speaks of spirits. Who are the spirits here? Well, spirits is an Old Testament term that is used only for angels. Usually, when it's spoken of, of men, it would speak of souls. He would speak to the souls. But in this particular case, it says he spoke to the spirits. These spirits, these angels, who could these angels be? Well, he timestamps it here again in verse 20. He says, this was during the time of Noah. Matter of fact, it was during the time of the construction of the ark. And so these spirits, these spirits are angels. They are in prison. In a past time, they were disobedient. And they were, the, the timestamp again was Noah's time during the building of the ark. Now, this takes us to Genesis chapter 6. Let's go turn there. Genesis chapter 6. The Bible is always its best commentator upon itself. 
Now, what we have here is the main question that is asked any time a question and answer comes about. You can still hear this on pastor's perspective. It's one of the main questions asked. Who are the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6? Well, let's read it, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, so these are human daughters, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, or Nephilim, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The disobedience of these spirits, or these or fallen angels, or demons. Now, how does all of this work? And is it happening today? And Well, there's a lot here, and there's a lot here that the Bible does not say specifically who these, first of all, who these sons of, of God are. Well, the sons of God, I, I completely believe that these are fallen angels, what we would call demons today. The only people referred to as sons of God. Adam would be referred to as a son of God because he was created directly by God. Uh, Angels are referred to as sons of God. They were created directly by God. Uh, Jesus Christ is referred to as a son of God as as well. And so a lot of times man, Jesus is referred the same way because he's fully man, fully God, but we're referred to as the son of men or the son of man. And so we have these angels, these demons, and what are they doing? Well, there's two main views on this. One view is, is that these angels are having relations with these women, and they're producing this hybrid race of Nephilim. Is that true? Is that false? Well, the argument against that would be that angels can't procreate. They can't have babies. But nowhere does the Bible say that. The Bible just says they won't be married, but it doesn't say that they can't make babies, if you will. Is that true? Well, if that is true, then they would produce, as I said before, this hybrid race. And so who would the judgment come against? Well, against man, but also against the hybrid race. But it says here, the flood came against, verse 3, we're told, I've underlined it, it says, I will not strive with man forever. In verse 4, the last part of the verse, those who were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and a little bit further down, the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. Verse 6, he had made man on the earth. So, if these giants are not man, then you think the wrath of God would be directed towards them. So, and, and that's a possibility. Another possibility is, is that the devil, and we see it throughout the scriptures, will inhabit somebody, demon-possessed. We've heard of that. The Antichrist is going to be the fulfillment of that. Antichrist isn't the devil, but he is going to be under the sway of the devil completely, if you will, sold out to the devil. And so the idea behind these spirits is is that they possessed men, and then when they produced offspring, they were raised by, you may feel that you were raised like this, but they were raised by demon-possessed parents. And they had such an effect upon them that they produced these people who were giants or who were exceedingly evil. 
And so take it either way. But these angels, these fallen angels, there had to be a stop put to it. And God did just that. In Jude 6, we're told, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain. So apparently, somewhere along the line, and we're not told when this happened, God drew a line in the sand and told the devil, don't cross it. Remember in the book of Job, Satan wants to torment Job, but he has to first go ask for permission to do so. These angels, again, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And then in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, or into this prison, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Not only are they reserved for judgment, but I believe they're going to be reserved and God is going to use them for judgment. Because we see as Satan is cast out of heaven, we see the abyss and there's going to be these evil angels that are delivered from the abyss and they're going to torment the earth. Why is all of this important? It's important that we understand that these angels have been dealt with. It's why we don't see a reoccurrence of this. As man submits himself to de- the devil, you'll see demon possession and so on and so forth, but never again to the magnitude that we see back in the time of, uh, of the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn back to First Peter if you've yet to do so yet. So again, so Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. So the idea here is, what did he do? He went and preached this song of victory to those angels that had been put in prison, who formerly, again it describes who these spirits are, who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared for which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. That is not stating that you are saved through baptism, but it's the idea, the picture that baptism is, and that you were a sinner, and that the word of God was spoken to you, and as you go down into the water, it's as if you're dying into the word of God, but then you are being brought back up, and you have the word of God completely has immersed you, and you go into a new life. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but of the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And so that's the point that wraps it all up, that Christ had the authority. And so through all of these Nephilim and all of that stuff, see the authority that he has. He sits in that place of authority over all of creation. We're told this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And the reason they say all of that is, is because the one who has all of this authority has chosen to place his love on us. He has chosen to not condemn you. He has chosen to not judge you. He has chosen to save you. And you need to see the magnitude of the love of God. Don't get hung up in the Nephilim and were these really angels, were they not? Were they the sons of Seth? You know, who, it, all of that, we can waste so much time. It's fun to talk about and all of that, and we need to study it. There's no doubt about that. But get caught up in the grace of God. 
Have the grace of God rule within your life. Because it's that which changed your life. And it's that working through you which is going to change the lives of others. Don't let Satan tell you, tell you you're a failure because I'll tell you that. You've all, you're all failures. And that's, that's a given. And, and if there's somebody who thinks they're not, God will bring you to where you need to be. But as failures, we're the ones whom God has chosen to use. Poster child, Peter. He denied the Lord. Said, I'll even die for you. These others... They may deny you, but I won't, and he did. Because man was not created to die for Christ, but Christ was sent to die for mankind, but for the divine purpose that we would live. And so we adhere to proper biblical doctrine so that our conscience would be clear. We would have that avenue for the Holy Spirit. If he convicts us of a bad way that we have gone, then so be it. Be open, change, repent, and go in the proper direction. If the devil tries to enter in, know that you have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. It's an amazing thing. It's an absolute, you are an absolute miracle. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your word that makes these things so clear. And I pray, Father, that we would grasp onto these things and that we would not fail to do good. And so, Father, I just lift ourselves to you and we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word and pray, Father, that we would cling to it, that, Father, we would be faithful in prayer, Lord, that we would fellowship and God just give you glory in all that we do. And so, Father, I just lift up this day, this day that the world just worships at the altar of of uh, of this football game. I pray for believers, Lord, and and there's no sin in this and going and enjoying it. I'm not saying that, but I pray, Father, that we would use it as an opportunity to be a witness, Lord. And Father, as you give us these opportunities, we just see that there's eternal ramifications that come about because of them. And so, Father, once again, we just thank you for this day, and we just pray, Father, that we would give it back to you in complete and total obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things before we close. Number one, I'm usually at the back of the church. If you want to know more about a relationship with Christ, if you have any questions about what I've said up here or any questions whatsoever, that's what I'm back there for. So if you could just give me a few minutes when everybody goes by, I'm there to talk to whoever wants to talk. Uh, couples dinner, couples dinners on the 16th. We're two weeks out now. We need to get you signed up. So I'd appreciate it if you could get signed up. That way we'll be able to plan and uh, make make plans for all that we need to do. There'll be a couple up here for prayer after service. And if you're sick and tired about hearing the Super Bowl, tonight we'll be speaking about Jesus again. God bless you guys. Amen. So... We're going to end a little differently. It's a more softer, I guess, song. But we chose it because just like as a reminder, as we're about to leave these doors, as we're about to exit and we're about to face trials, we're about to face temptation maybe, whatever it is that we're going to face, that we would just remind our souls that no matter what, great are you, Lord. And to just have that declaration of God we we know that you reign we know that you're able we know that that you're with us so just join us in just worshiping him and proclaiming his greatness you give life you are love you bring light 
Great are you, Lord. 
Amen. God is good. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.